You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Liza Nash-Taylor back on the show with me. She was on last year, and we talked about her uh, her brand new debut novel at the time. It was called Etiquette for Runaways, and today she has a brand new book that's out. It's called In All Good Faith, and these books are connected, um, yet don't have to be uh, read in any particular, and, and we'll we'll talk all about that in a little bit. Uh, but Liza, thank you so much for joining me again. Hank, thank you. It's so nice to talk to you again. Um, almost a year ago, we talked yes. after my first novel came out, and I don't know how many art authors have had um, two two novels come out during a pandemic, but uh, but I sure have, uh, and it's been interesting for sure. <laughs> But, uh, you know, this time uh, I, I kind of knew what to expect and uh, and it's pretty much the same as last time. But I, I will have a couple of in-person things. That's great. Um, last year when we talked, speaking of the, the pandemic, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, we all were hopeful that, you know, this thing was just about over. We had been through a, a pretty tumultuous summer and you know, surely it's going to get all back to normal just any day now. Um, you know, that hasn't exactly played out <laughs> the way we hope. Um, but yeah, what was it like to to launch a book during a pandemic? Well, and now launching a second book during the same pandemic. But, uh, you know, I'm sure your experience was not exactly the experience that we've all read about. You know, the authors talking about launching their first book and going on book tour and and all of that. That you know, what did you have to do to temper those expectations? Yes. Uh, well, you know, it's the only way I know how to do it is during a pandemic. So, um, <laughs> um, of course, I don't even know yeah. how to write when there's not one going exactly. on. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I had a, a fabulous publicist, Anne Marie Nieves from Get Red PR, and she um, she was terrific at generating Zoom events and Facebook Live events and podcasts like Speaking with You. Um, so those really saved me and all of the authors who had things coming out during the pandemic. Um, and it continues to be that way. You know, and I, I think it's going to continue to be very much of a virtual thing to have a book, a book come out. Um, you know, we all went out and bought ring lights and headsets and um, learned to do Zoom makeup. The women did. And um you know, it's just we we all have had to adapt. Um, not not just authors, everybody has. Um, but hopefully, going forward, there'll be a sort of a nice hybrid of being able to reach more people all over the world through you know virtual events, but also getting back to in person, face to face. You know, actually really connecting with readers, and that's something that I look forward to and that I've missed. 
I'll tell you what, for for folks that don't work in the in the book publishing industry and and kind of know about the the machinations that go on behind the scene that, you know, that go into launching a book and getting uh, the public aware of this, you know, new author and new book and and all of that. And people like Anne Marie um, that you mentioned a minute ago are just uh, kind of the unsung heroes of of a lot of uh people being exposed to to new books and new authors uh, and they really had to pivot on a dime and figure out okay you know how do we make the best of this bad situation and, and i think one thing that a lot of people are very grateful for during this pandemic is that we really haven't had much of a shortage of of books to read and you know thankfully audiobooks and kindles and and things like that made it easy, uh, you know, when you couldn't walk into a bookstore. And uh, I think those people deserve a lot of credit that that uh, that people overlook. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And certainly, my um, my local indie bookshop, New Dominion uh, Bookshop, has just been fabulous. They're hosting me with a reading and signing event uh, on September 10th, and. Um, you know, it's it's these little. It, it I think during the pandemic, not only do we do we rely on the big platforms, um, Facebook and Instagram and Zoom, but also it it comes really much more down to uh, word of mouth. You know, when people aren't really seeing each other and going to parties and talking about what book you're reading, it's more like, um, hey, you know, people. You have to make a point to talk about it and bring it up and. Um, and so there's been that I've had a lot of friends and my family, of course, they had better, um, promoting my book, but, um, you know, I'd be interested to see what it's like to launch a book when you could, when, when an author actually could go on a book tour and, and meet with lots of book clubs and, um, and I'd be interested to just see what the, what the differences would be. Sure. Um, Help me remember when we talked last year about uh, etiquette for runaways. That that was a book that you had worked on uh, for for a little while. Uh, if if I remember right, that goes back to um, your uh, your writing classes. Uh, that the the book was kind of born while you were working uh, on that writing degree. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I, I was a late blooming writer, to say the least. I started when my um, youngest child went to high school. I started going back to school to take literature courses, and that morphed into getting a master's in um, creative writing. And I went to a low residency program at Vermont College of Fine Arts. So for two years, I was going for 10 days on campus and then the rest of the semester working with an advisor. Uh, from home. And so Etiquette for Runaways was my master's thesis uh, after two years of working with that and and working with my first agent on that book. Um, So what happened was um, I changed agents. Etiquette for Runaways went out on submission to publishers with my uh, second literary agent. And while that was happening, and of course that process can take months, I had to continue my work in my uh, MFA program. And so I started In All Good Faith, uh, a second novel, which is a standalone sequel to Etiquette for Runaways. And it takes the same main character, one of them, May Marshall, six years later in 1932 during the Great Depression. 
that that's uh, okay. That that clears up um, a little bit for me because I'm I'm always fascinated, um, y- you know, to to talk about follow up books because a lot of people have an experience like you where they have a book that they've worked on, uh, and and they've had time and space to really. Uh, work on that book and edit and, you know, change a few things if they, uh, you know, feel the need to or, or, or whatever. And and very few people in the world um, know that this book exists and that you're working on it. And there's there's something about anonymity um, for that first novel that is just it's special. There, there's there's no pressure around it or very little pressure. But then you, you follow that up with um, with in all good faith a year later. Um, and and I'm I, I get now that you had already started working that uh, working on that, um, but what was it like? You know, you've got that first book out, and now you know there's a there's a schedule. There are expectations. People are are looking for book two. What what was that experience like of bringing book two to life in light of you know the first being published and and not having any pressure. Yeah. um, Well, you know, it was interesting uh, when my first novel came out, of course, that's something that aspiring novelists, you know, really that that's what you want to happen. And what I didn't realize uh, was that, yes, my dream was coming true. My novel was going to be out in the world. But along with that comes a certain level of vulnerability that I hadn't anticipated. And um, for instance, you know, seeing seeing reviews on Amazon um, from complete strangers who picked up the book and, and can say whatever they think, right. um, there's something, it, it's like, I, I, I compared it to like sending your toddler naked across a busy intersection <laughs> and you can just stand back and watch what happened. Um, and so the second one, there's the same vulnerability. There's that same sort of offering up. Here's what I've created. I hope you like it. Um, but but in a way, um, my my skin is thicker, and you know it's not going to define me. As, you know what people think about about what I've written. Um, so yeah, there there's um, there there is definitely. I think any artist who puts their their work out is is being you know open for judgment and and feeling vulnerable but i do feel a lot more resilient this time and um and more confident definitely more confident in um talking about what i've done and why i did it and how it came to be well in the first book um etiquette for runaways we we learned about may and we followed her on this exciting journey um just a you know personal transformation uh and in the new book the roaring 20s that are the backdrop of the first book uh have given way to the great depression and uh the stark realities of that um first off uh, did you did you always know that you would continue may's story and uh and you know how did you start thinking about you know, where you would take her and her story and then characters that that she would intersect with later? That's a great question. When when I started in all good faith, um, I didn't know if Etiquette for Runaways would sell or not to a publisher. So I knew that it needed to stand on its own. 
And originally, I, I had a feeling uh, that I wanted to continue May's story and, and can, you know, pick up on the chapters of her life that would come after. And I had an idea of what that story might be. But at the same time, another character started bumping around in my head and wouldn't go away. And I've never had that happen. I, I've heard of other authors say that a character will spring into their minds fully formed. Right. And this uh, teenage girl just sort of kept knocking around. And finally, I started listening to her and I, I gave her a name, which is a combination of two Charles Dickens characters um, from Little Dorrit and from Oliver Twist. And once I gave her a name, she really just sprang to life. And <laughs> some of the research I had done sort of fell into place. And this one central event, the bonus march, uh, became the center of the story. And both May's story and Dorrit's story, I told parallel alternating chapters and then coming around this central event in the summer of 1932, their stories could intertwine, their lives could intertwine and, and they could influence each other in ways that neither could have imagined. One thing that I love about historical fiction uh, is that um, it, it's a it's a guilty pleasure in a lot of ways uh, because you you get a great story you get to go on a journey with with some characters, um, but you also get to learn some things um, about the world that we live in about the past uh, sometimes recent past sometimes distant past, um, but it, it's a fun way to uh, you know broaden your understanding of other people and other times. Um, how do you balance, because you do this masterfully, um, uh, balancing uh, bringing us into this world, uh, and the Depression era is far enough removed from us that uh, very few people are still living that, that live through that time or, you know, they're getting well into age. Uh, most of us don't don't have any understanding of what the world was like there. Um, so how how do you balance giving us enough details that it feels like that we are there and that we understand the times and the people while keeping it entertaining. You know, that to me, that has always seemed like such a, a, a great tight wall, uh, tight rope that you're having to walk um, because you don't want to just inundate people uh, so that they feel like they're sitting in history class. Um, but at the same time, you want to give enough um, texture and history to the story that that we we can relate to it. Uh, how do you balance those? That's a, another good question. Um, thank you. Um, well, I tell you, I I love doing the research. I mean, I can just go down a rabbit hole and spend days on Pinterest looking at <laughs> vintage photographs and things <laughs> like that. Um, so it is hard. Sometimes I I a little bell goes off in the back of my head. Sometimes like Liza, you're info dumping here. You know, like I find. Uh, for instance, Admiral Richard Byrd took two and a half tons of Necco wafers to the South Pole. I'm like, oh, I really need to work that in somewhere. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, you have to say, no, that's an Instagram post. That's not <laughs> that's not that's not a plot point. Um, I really like to read first person accounts. Um or related first-person accounts. And one great source in my research was Stud Turkle's book called Hard Times, where he interviewed a lot of people from all walks of life, uh, 
who made it through the depression and what their experiences were. And reading these first person um, accounts and then also reading contemporaneous um, magazines written during the day and novels that were written during that era, they sort of give me a feel for the language and the slang and, and, um, and how much things cost and, and what day-to-day -day life was like. And when I read historical fiction, one thing I love is finding out those, that minutia about day-to-day -day life, things that I'd never heard of um, that, that, as you said, are like a little history lesson, but it's, it's hopefully you know, fun as you're learning it. And uh, it gives you a little sound bite for a cocktail party when you know. <laughs> right. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and three acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Write. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let PlotPens help you visualize your writing project. 
Use code HANK10 to get 10% off plot pins. Plotpins.com. As you're, uh, you know, working on this book over the last year and, 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 you know, getting it ready for publication and, um, uh, it's probably a, a, a pass or two of editing that you did. Um, were, were you surprised, uh, at, at the similarities between the depression era and what, what we have been going through this last 18 months? I, I know they're not on the surface, um, you know, similar, um, but when you start digging down, the, I, th- I think there are kind of a lot of similarities of, of what we've been going through. Did 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 any of that strike you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, you know, when I started this book in 2016, I think it was nobody imagined that, you know, we'd be where we are this summer of 2021. But, you know, I think in the past year and a half, many of us have come to sort of define our pod of close friends to quarantine with and and. This implies to me like a level of mutual trust and concern that we've never had to qualify before. You know, who is our inner circle? Who are we? Who's, who, who has our backs? Who are we looking out for? And we worried over sick friends and kept each other afloat. And I'm sure that during the depression, you know, your next door neighbor might lose their house in a bank foreclosure, someone who's hardworking, it's no fault of their own. And we see the same thing happening now, Um, hardworking citizens losing their jobs and their homes, um, you know, just because of circumstance. So I hope, um, you know, this is, I definitely see some some parallels and um, I hope that those little positive outcomes that we glean from this time and from that time stay with us. For sure. Um, one of the uh, most interesting uh, little storylines in the book uh, has to do with Dorrit and the way she was raised and the religion um, that that she um, was raised in and in her mother's, you know, kind of a zealot and, and, you know, Dorrit wrestling with what she actually believes and, and, you know, how she sees the world and, and where she, you know, thinks all of these things line up. Um, uh, where did the idea for, for that storyline come from? Well, faith is is obviously, I mean, the, I, the, the title came late in the process, but faith became pretty early on a theme in the book. Um, for Dorrit, certainly, um, I, I started reading about Christian science, and I found it fascinating. It's a, a religion that was started by Mary Baker Eddy in 1879 in Boston. She had uh, what she described as an incident of uh, divine healing. And she, um, her theory is that intense contemplation of the perfection of God can heal. Now, if you go on the website today of uh, the Church of Christ scientists, they say that everyone can choose for their families the kind of health care that meets their needs. But th- it is a controversial religion, and Dorrit has been brought up with an anxiety disorder, and she knows she's not like other people. She knows she, she develops a set of rituals and distractions that get her through her anxiety attacks. And her mother is meanwhile telling her to pray, to pray to make it go away, um, to pray and get through it. And Dorit realizes it's not, that doesn't work for me. So she, through her storyline, takes her through an exploration 
of what does she believe in? Who can she believe in? And how can she believe in herself and, uh, you know, and, and help herself to get through this anxiety issue? And on May's side, the issue of faith is faith in herself, again, in, in sort of coming back home and trying to revamp the family business and faith in her, her ideas as a business person, uh, and also faith in her marriage, in her husband, trusting him to take care of them. And, and, and uh, the issues that they deal with, the conflicts that they have of faith with each other um, in their marriage that are exacerbated, of course, by the terrible hard times that they're going through. Speaking of the anxiety that that Dort um, struggles with, um, you know, you there is a certain stigma um, even still uh, around mental health. And and uh, my mother worked in in uh, in mental health for uh, for all of her career. And and uh, there was a lot of talk about it around our house and and things like that. but not for everyone. That that's something that that people still are not comfortable talking with. Um, and you 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 think about the stigma around mental health now until you start looking back at like the Great Depression era, and you just think we have a you know that there's a stigma now. Um, there was a, a you know there was really a stigma then. Um, and you know it, it's to the point now that that um, you know when when someone mentions that they have anxiety or they you know struggle with this or that um it it's it's accepted you know people just nod their head and um you know this is a thing that we can talk about now um but not always uh that that was an, an interesting um thing that you wrote into the story what what was it that got you um you know to thinking about this and thinking about how we have changed as a society and you know maybe how far we still have yet to change yeah, well, I, I wrote about her anxiety from a very personal place. It's something I've struggled with since I was a teenager. Um, so I I was able to pull from my personal experiences uh, in her in, in her going through anxiety attacks and 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 how she anticipates them and deals with them when they happen. But um, as with my first book, I sent a list of questions, medical questions, to my family doctor. And he uh, he is something of a medical historian, and he loves helping me with the medical research. So he loaned me a 700-page volume called The Modern Home Physician, and it's it's edited by the very aptly named Dr. Wise, and it's got you know gruesome diagrams and um, pages and pages. I think it has seven pages in small print on um, on met- mental disease. And anxiety is is classed under mental disease. So I use this medical textbook as a source for all of the treatments uh, for and symptoms and um, of the that uh, you know of the day of the early 1930s. So when I talk about typhoid or diphtheria, that's that that's where I'm getting the information from. You know, I needed to know did they have antibiotics then? No, not no, they didn't. Um, but anyway, in mental disease, when you when you I read about how it was perceived at the time, it they re, it really was sort of um, not something that was considered um, a norm a part of a normal person's life. Um, 
they one one quotation from the book it says the incidence of insanity is considerably greater among the unmarried insanity is also more common among those who've been widowed so in my um in my story dorit goes to the boston public library and trying to self diagnose and she finds this medical text and she reads it and it gives her a lot of conflicting and confusing information and leads her to sort of say, yeah, okay, I know that there's something medically wrong with me, but I can't get Freudian therapy. And, um, you know, I'm just going to have to find a way to deal with this on my own. But it was fascinating reading about medical treatments from 1932. I'll bet. I'll bet. And and scary in a lot of ways, I'll bet. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yes. Oh man. Well, speaking of of things that um um can be shocking and 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 scary uh or the the different experiences that men and women uh had during the depression era as uh you know compared to to now and you know not that uh not that our interpersonal relations are are perfect now um but hopefully we've we've come uh you know uh, a ways in a century um what were some of the more shocking things about the difference in uh, in the way women were treated then? Well, one thing that surprised me uh, was that during the Depression, some institutions like railroads and the Postal Service laid off all of their female employees in order to make those jobs available to men who had families to care for. But in the 1930s, I think, um, aside from the uh, Depression, at that in that era, men were expected to be the providers, while w- women stayed home. And an unmarried woman was labeled a spinster and generally disregarded by society. Um, so I think that for men, the struggles of that era were tied to their self-esteem as breadwinners. And some men left their families, saying they were going to search for work, and they never came back. That that was the circumstance that Kristen Hanna writes about in her recent novel about the depression called The Four Winds. Um, But women learned to adapt and to make do with less and then to make do with nothing. And they entered the workforce where they could find jobs like picking crops and they proved that they could work as hard as as men. And then going up into um, the next war, you know, women went to work in the munitions factories and things like that. So May is conflicted by the pushback she gets while she's attempting to revamp her family business to adapt to the hard times. And um, she decides to act on her own intuition without her husband's consent. And in 1932, that was a big deal. Right. There's a there's a lot of um, depression. (laughs) Pardon the pun uh, and, and hardship in the book. But ultimately, there's a. There's a a huge thread of hope that runs through this story. Um, did w- was that something that was uh, that was conscious on your on your part to to make sure that you didn't let the reader just feel hopeless all the time, uh, <laughs> or you know, is this just part of your personality naturally, or um, you know, h- how do you balance the the starkness of the time? while also not ever letting us just fall completely into despair? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, it, uh, 
it's perseverance and resilience. I did want this to end, hopefully. I did want to see these two women from very different backgrounds come together and, and find an unlikely success. And finding a way to do that plausibly was, was a challenge. And I also, um, at the end of May's first story in Etiquette for Runaways, we uh, left her at the end of that novel in 1926 in Paris, and she had just really messed up her life and lied to everyone who loved her, and she had a lot of work to do. And so I'm hoping, going into starting in all good faith with her story six years later, I wanted her to uh, have a chance to redeem herself and to help others and to sort of really see her character arc, to see her grow as a woman, as now a mother, as a wife, and then, you know, branching out from that as a businesswoman as someone who can uh, take a teenage girl, a teenage runaway girl and, and help her and get her back on her feet and help her to blossom. So um, that is a big theme of it is sort of woman power of, you know, these women in this hard time getting through and ultimately coming out with something help, hopeful and, uh, and positive. Absolutely. In All Good Faith is available everywhere. Um, when you're hearing this, you can go grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook. Um, Liza, have you listened to the audiobook? I've just started. I've listened to um, to about three chapters. I don't know if you've had other authors tell you it's hard to listen to your yes. own work. Oh, but yeah. I, I, got, uh, I was allowed to help in the selection of the narrator. And Sophie Amos, uh, they sent me several auditions. And and then I had a phone call with Sophie Amos, the narrator. And um, we just immediately clicked. She's a native Southerner. She, um, I, you know, I said, I, I, I want it to sound sort of like conversational, like you're just telling me a story. And yeah. I think she really pulled that off. Well, I can't wait to grab it and listen to it as well. Um, in All Good Faith is available everywhere. We're going to put links to it in the show notes where you can grab it on Amazon or from Audible uh, if if you prefer. Or if your local bookstore is back open, uh, go visit them and and, uh, and let's keep local bookstores in business during this uh, this hard time for, uh, for bookstores, I know. So let's do what we can to help them out. Uh, Liza, this has been so much fun catching up. Thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Hank, thank you so much for having me. I love talking to you. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two, by Jason Onspach and Nick Cole. Narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter One. The army of the dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51, a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nano-plague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. 
about 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons, which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us, Claymore Mines, the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne, had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymore's sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us, and an early one at that. But there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield other, darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching army of the dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain, we'd kill them there. And I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing whispered Sergeant Kang over the calm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales, green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some, rotting boots, helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts, beads and charms dangling from bone wrists, enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt, 
or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be, where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence, malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.